This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss an issue that's in front of all of us on our TV screens, in our newspapers, the refugee crisis. That has actually been a longstanding refugee crisis in our contemporary world, a crisis made much worse by recent events in Afghanistan. And we are fortunate today to have with us uh, someone who I think is doing some of the most interesting and thoughtful work on understanding the refugee experience, seeing the refugee experience through the eyes of refugees, and putting that experience in a broader intellectual framework. This is a, an old friend, colleague, and a fellow troublemaker, Venkut Mani. <laughs> Venkut, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy and Zachary. I'm really excited to be on This is Democracy. I truly think very highly of this podcast. It's a great honor. Well, we are fortunate to have, have you with us today, and we know how busy you are. Venkut is a professor of German and world literature, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also a race, ethnicity, and indigeneity senior fellow at the university. He was born and brought up in India, and uh, he came to the United States for graduate school. That's actually where he and I met uh, at mm-hmm. Stanford University. We, we saw each other in the library, I think, week upon week until we finally That's talked right. to one another. <laughs> Absolutely. We were familiar strangers. We, we were friends before we knew it, right, Venka? That's true. That's true. <laughs> Saturday morning library goers. <laughs> exactly. We were the only ones there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It, it is, for those listening, the best time to go to the library. You have it to yourself. Um, <laughs> Venkut researches and teaches German literature, the literature of migrants and refugees in multiple societies, and world literature. He's actually a pioneer of the field of world literature. He's the author of a number of important books, A Cosmopolitan Claims, which he published about 13, 14 years ago, and then a multiple award-winning book, Recoding World Literature. He's also published a book I highly recommend as an introduction to the field of world literature. It's called A Companion to World Literature. And he writes frequently for newspapers and various other uh, publications on multiple continents. The Wire, in, uh, which is in Hindi, Inside Higher Education, Telos, the Hindustan Times. And he most recently published a really thoughtful piece in the Hindustan Times called Empire Slay, Public's Pay, the global refugee crisis unfolding in Afghanistan, really one of the most thoughtful analyses of this refugee crisis that I've seen. We will link that uh, on the website so you can all go to the Hindustan Times and read that. So uh, we have a lot to talk about, Venkat. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, truly. I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward also to um, listening to Zachary's poem. Yes, that's where we go next. You know that. Uh, so, uh, Zachary, what is your poem title today? The airplane with a city clinging to its wheels. Let's hear it. A city is like a memory, forceful, more potent than a real place, and fragile, broken in the span of a second, in the span of a single synapse, undone. And a city is like an airplane, like an airplane leaving, like the airplanes leaving the city to lick its own wounds in its own dust. But a city is also its fathers and mothers, its daughters and sons, its teachers, its butchers, its taxi drivers, its soccer stars. A city is only its people, 
jumbled together on the school bus on a Thursday or jumbled together on the tarmac of a runway, the airplane with a city clinging to its wheels. Zachary, were you inspired by the images of refugees clinging to American aircraft? Yes, uh, very much so. But I was also inspired by uh, the, the tragic now uh, tale of, of, of the uh, cultural community in uh, Kabul and other cities in Afghanistan and, and, and the vibrancy, the vitality of those communities that are now being uh, slowly dismantled. Mm-hmm. Uh, Venkat, I, I think that's probably a good on-ramp to uh, our discussion uh, how, how should we, sitting in our comfortable homes, watching this unfold on our screens, how should we understand what's happening in Kabul and other parts of Afghanistan today? I think, first of all, in the words of this wonderful young poet, Zachary Suri, the airplane with the city clinging to its wheels, I'm, I'm truly shaken, moved by the power of these words, Zachary. Thank you for sharing this poem with us. Just like he said, you know, it is very much um, this potent image of an airplane taking off and a city with all of its memory, its fathers, mothers, um, children jumbled in school buses, all of it um, somehow encapsulated in this one human being clinging on to something, something to just get out for survival, knowing how dangerous it is. That is one of the first things that we think how we need to understand these images coming out of Afghanistan now. Connecting with, with the rest of the world as the plane takes off. And, you know, plane is only for people who can afford it. So I'll be talking about some road journeys later on as well. Very dangerous ones. But we need to understand what is happening in Afghanistan, first of all, as part of a global crisis. So there is a local crisis. But there's also a global refugee crisis. And Jeremy, like you said, there's a longstanding crisis. Um, it's a crisis that can date back to forever, because wherever there have been wars, refugees have been created. So these journeys, and I know a while ago, Zachary also had a poem about uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. So Homer's Odyssey is, is very much also about this time a hero coming back home. And, and there's this beautiful episode where he's recognized by his own nurse. This return is not allowed, is not permissible to a number of people who must leave, because if they come back, they will be killed or they will have no chances to survive for a number of reasons. So if you think about it, there are 82.4 million forcibly displaced persons around the world. This is the statistics of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR. And of these, there are internally displaced people, there are um, stateless persons, and there are refugees. Refugees meaning people whose status as a refugee, their legal status as a refugee, has been accepted. Their asylum application has been accepted. So this makes, and you'll be startled to find out, there is 1% of the world's population today is forcibly displaced. And a number of them, a very large number of them, are children. And that is why the image that I, that I um, noticed in Zachary's poem is both admonishing and inspiring, because it tells us that there is a future of humanity at stake. It's not just our generation 
it's the one that comes after us. And then let's think about this global crisis and come to the local, because both of them in today's world are connected. You know, there's long talks about globalization of services, of goods, of economy, of floating monies uh, between nations, of multinational companies. All that happens because of human power. It's the humans that matter the most. So if you think about Afghanistan, what happens in Afghanistan doesn't stay in Afghanistan, which means Let's think about the three kinds of crises that are happening there. One, of course, is a political crisis, right? It's the crisis at the end of a 20-year-long war. It's essentially a crisis of democratic governance. It's a usurpation of power by force. Second, there's a social crisis connected to that political crisis. So this one is caused by the fact that the persons who have come to power, they are actually religious fundamentalists. Right? They are essentially misogynists. So they're going to, and this is not just pointing out at one kind of fundamentalism, any religious fundamentalism, be any, it can come from, um, Christianity, Hinduism, um, Buddhism, we've seen that, you know, in the case of uh, Myanmar, it can come in in various different ways, shapes and forms, but essentially it remains anti-democratic, it is fundamental, it is fundamentalist, it is totalitarian. So, um, and it's, it's, in all of its forms, it's pretty misogynistic. So, that's where I'm disheartened about this particular uh, social crisis that is happening. As, as I've been reading, I've been following Afghanistan very closely. You listen to, to women journalists who are scared. You listen to non-governmental social workers. Yesterday, there was a story in the BBC um, about um, women who've been working for the local municipality in Kabul, and, and they are worried about whether or not they should return to work, if they should return to work, how should they be dressed. Um, You have school children, you know, Taliban were always against schools and and, uh, countless bombings in the last 10, 20 years, even after, you know, them having been deposed from power. um, They have attacked schools. School children have died continuously. And this is an area of the world that actually was excellent in education and needs education. Right. In order for its citizens to become part of the nation, part of the world as uh, participating citizens in the world, in the text of, of this global political um, you know, economy, global political culture that we have. So um, that's where for me there's a scary um uh, social crisis going on. And then related to these, this political crisis and the social crisis is the refugee crisis. And that is like all other refugee crises around the world. So that essentially emanates from these two crises. You know, um, uh, the great American author, contemporary Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, has a beautiful essay called On Being a um, Refugee, an American, and a Human Being. It's a beautiful essay, and I teach it too. When in this essay says so beautifully that, you know, uh, being a refugee means your government has imploded on you. Um, basic infrastructure has been brought to naught. And that's where nobody wants to be a refugee. You know, nobody wants to leave anything, everything behind. Um, people are made into refugees they become refugees. And so wars, conflicts, new conflict zones, 
they create refugees. So that's how I think we need to understand this larger arc. Ultimately, it is a crisis for human beings who are made into refugees, turned into refugees. That's so well said, uh, Venkat. And and one of the challenges I I think many of us find, even those of us who are supposed to be experts on global affairs, is that our discourse about refugees can be curiously dehumanizing, mm-hmm. right? We, we can talk about them in terms of numbers yes. or in terms of a problem. Uh, just even using the term crisis, it, it makes it sound like they've done something wrong, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so one of the things I really revere about your work, Venkat, is, is you've, you've devoted your career to bringing out the voices and the perspectives of those who, who are refugees, whether it's Turkish refugees in Germany and elsewhere, how can we as citizens be attentive and how can we see those voices in our discussions? It's an excellent question. And there, um, one friendly amendment, if I may suggest, is to think about uh, Turkish migrants as migrants. And then there are, of course, refugees. And and Jeremy, I say this um, just because the more I work, the more I understand my own privileges. Um, so uh, despite the fact that, you know, I may have come from a lower middle class family, I did not have to leave India in a jiffy overnight. I had options. I was a part of a democratic society where things were functioning in the 1990s. I had a passport. Nobody prevented me from going anywhere. I wanted not to survive. I wanted to thrive. And that is why I came, uh, you know, to the United States uh, for higher education um, at Stanford. Um, This was, it's not as if those educational opportunities were not available in India. I had a choice. I could choose another country. Refugees cannot. And that's why I'm suggesting this difference that we all ought to um, understand that there is a um, very special um, kind of uh, insecurity that arises, that clinging to the um, to the wheel of a plane, that an entire city, an entire archive of memories um the fathers, mothers, the stories, all of them cling. That's where I think literature becomes important. So one of the first experiences in this, um, you know, and this is not to um, diminish your expertise or expertise of scholarly um, uh, social scientists in general, because I know that your work, you think about the larger arc of history and our social our democratic responsibility. Um, and that for us remains important. But then there is the, the emotional, the power of emotions and experiences that comes through literature for me. And that's where I think the feeling of being scared, the feeling of being utterly helpless and insecure, not knowing if and until when one will live. And if one ends up surviving, how will one live? Will I be executed? Will I be killed because of who I am, what I believe in? What will happen to my children? Um, So, you know, that is the first set of experiences also documented in literature. And I'll talk a little bit more about it, but I'm just giving you sort of a general sense. I thought it was important for me to convey today to people what happens when one becomes a refugee overnight. Then, of course, how will I get out, right? 
will I cling to the, to the wheel of a plane? I keep coming back to you, Zachary, because I'm so immersed in your poem right now. Um, but very much like what, like Zachary's poem, you know, the, the concerns that people have, the, the, the trauma of departure, the enigma of arrival, the difficulty of the journey in between, um, the idea that, um, you know, why me? Why am I swept by these, these large uh, currents of world history? What have I done? You know, that is the kind of experience. So, Jeremy, when you said numbers, yes, I also cited numbers because it's important to have an eye on the numbers and see how a large part of our fellow human beings today are refugees. But then comes literature, then come these stories, and they provide faces, they provide names to these statistics so that every human being can say, hey, look, I'm not a number. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. Um, I have a stake in this society. I have hopes. I have dreams. I want to survive. I want to thrive as well. I don't want to have my entire existence built on whether or not if I go to school, I'll be bombed to death. So that becomes important. And for me, um, first, literature becomes a site of documentation of this kind of flight, plight and trauma, but then something basic, human hope, human capacity to aspire, human capacity to grow above these kinds of challenges, that resilience. And, you know, I can never forget this wonderful class that I had um, for this course that I teach at, at UW-Madison, Global Migrants and Refugees. And this was in the midst of a pandemic towards the end of this, this course on global migrants and, and refugees. And my um, we, I had an open session I usually do at the end of a course, and my students um, reflected on how now suddenly being locked in these places with these um, not being allowed to go out, being uncertain about the future, waiting for this pandemic time to be over has helped them develop more empathy for refugees who are sometimes stuck for years, for entire generations in refugee camps, right? So there is a way, there is a, but the hope doesn't die. That is the beauty. The hope that human um, existence and built on, that somehow I will be able to live, maybe, maybe if given another chance. I think that's where literature, that's where these stories, that engagement with language through poems, dramas, novels, um, that becomes important. Um, so giving a name, um, a personality, um, an entire humanity, dignity to a person, that's what literature does. So you've spoken of uh, the modern refugee crisis as something that is deeply rooted in history, as something that has been in many ways a constant in human history. But but isn't it also something that's distinctly modern? Because these refugee crises are defined by these very strict borders and divisions of labor and and economies that we set up that, 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 that keep people out in ways that we, we, we haven't seen before. That's a fantastic question, Zachary. I mean, um, one thing that I would say that uh, political boundaries, territorial demarcations, um, have been important to all phases of history. And that's why I was saying that, you know, some kind of political organization, that kind of territorial claiming that has traditionally left, led to wars, that has been part of, of human history. And if you think about 
uh, let's say the um, Odyssey, of, if you think about uh, the Persian epic Shahnameh, if you think about the epic of Sanjata, the the great um, epic from from Mali, if you think about uh, even the Mahabharat, you know the the one of the greatest. Uh, um, war epics and one of the greatest epics of world literature um, that was written in Sanskrit. Um, wherever there have been wars, um, there have been the term for that in English was fugitive. Right? People uh, fled to find refuge somewhere. Now, if we think about modern nation states, you're absolutely right, Zachary, that this homogenization of people around the idea of nation um, and homogenization of people around the idea of, um, let's say, a majoritarian national identity, a majoritarian culture, a majoritarian language, um, right? That singularity that that's often sought of in uh, modern nation states that creates a different kinds of kind of challenges for refugees. So, if you think about, um, let's say, in the United States, we know that it's a multilingual nation. We know that it's a multi-ethnic nation, a multi-religious nation. But then there always comes, you know, this idea of. Um, you know, melting pot. Something I don't particularly admire. This this particular metaphor. It's almost everybody surrenders their differences to become part of something. Right? Um, we can think of it in other terms. A bouquet um, smells better. Right? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what a melting pot would smell like, honestly. But um, you know, the the idea that uh, the beauty of a nation lies in its heterogeneity. And second, coming back to your questions. Zachary, that any nation or nation state was also slowly built through slow sedimentation. Waves of people came, waves of people were displaced. Look at the history of the United States, right? It's built on forced dispossession of land. It's built on waves of migrants coming into the country. It's built on forced migration through slavery of African-Americans painful points in history, but they also must be confronted in part of that larger reckoning. And that's where we can start thinking about refugees who've been pouring into the United States. Think about refugees who came after all of those pogroms in Eastern Europe. Think about all the refugees who came you know, in the 1930s during the Nazi regime and built this country. And it goes on. I mean, there are many instances from history. So yes, on the one hand, these nation states, these borders, they create a lot of problems. On the other hand, this modernity did lead us after the Second World War to 1951 and signing of the Geneva Convention. And that's a classic modern, very modern document that I consider that actually effectively changed the discourse of refugees from arbitrary goodwill of nation states or their leaders to a legal obligation of signatory nations, a major, major station in global governance. To what extent it's adhered to is a different story, but refugees have rights today, right? That modern discourse of human rights, of dignity, and that also cannot be forgotten because hope ultimately for a person like me is built on rights that I can claim my space in the society. Does that make sense, Zachary? Yes, I, I think it does. And, and I think it, it, it uh, takes us to um, another really important question, right? Which is um, what are the responsibilities that we have 
um, as we are watching this crisis uh, unfold. And the we here uh, is those of us who are fortunate enough not to be refugees, at least at this moment in time. Uh, and, and maybe the we is also the United States uh, as, as an entity that's obviously been deeply invested in the politics of Afghanistan and many other regions that uh, are dealing with refugee crises now. How do we understand our responsibilities, Venka? Excellent question. I mean, first, let me start with what you asked about the United States. Um, I think at the level of the government, and you said that, you know, it's been very it's a superpower. Let's just accept it. And a superpower cannot isolate itself from the rest of the world. So any kind of exceptionalist politics, any kind of I'm closing myself off, I'm in isolation, that's not going to help. And especially at this point of time when U.S. history is so much anchored in histories of other nations, right? I, I, I'm toying around with a term called hyperlinked histories, right? And, and if you think about a hyperlink, you know, we've all read Wikipedia articles. So there's an anchor text. And then when you click on something that leads you to another text, that leads you to another text. So if you think about the history of the United States as the anchor text, it leads to another text. It leads to another text. U.S., at some point of time, ceases to be the anchor text. So Afghan history, the history of Afghanistan today is connected with the United States, much as the history of Vietnam, the history of Korea, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, they're all connected to the United States wherever the United States has intervened or wherever the United States has had any kind of peaceful ties as well. So that's the first thing on, on, on part of the government where I think that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a history of acceptance. If we really take those words, um, you know, on the Statue of Liberty, seriously, the poor and huddled masses, you know, it becomes our responsibility to accept the, the poor, um, the uh, distraught, the downtrodden, especially if we've had some kind of a participation in helping create that refugee situation. Um, and I'm putting it very, very mildly here. Yes. Um, but we also have to think about, you know, how many refugees, I've already mentioned Jewish refugees who came in the 1930s and 40s, but in more recent history, you know, in the 70s, the, the Vietnamese refugees, the Iranian refugees in the 70s and 80s, those from Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also Rwanda, Somalia, uh, many other parts of the world who came in waves and built this country, right? Um, they helped create the social text of this country. So that is something that on a governmental level, I think this responsibility becomes important, especially if USCIS still says United States is a nation of immigrants. Then comes the uh, public part. And um, I have more to say on that just because um, one myth that I want to dispel is suddenly everybody has to become a political activist or write to the government or write articles or somehow go and, and start a movement for the acceptance of refugees. You know, not everybody has to do that. These are important venues. Absolutely. Do it. Do it on Twitter. Do it on social media. Write letters, make phone calls, you know, all of that. But I think of something very, very simple that people can also do, which is understanding, getting rid of one's own stereotypes, remembering one, one's own migration history, thinking 
that one also came from somewhere at some point of time in one's own personal past through family histories. There was a moment when someone became American so that others could claim, I was born in the United States, I'm American. Remembering that migration history of the United States, rem- you know, and developing empathy, understanding from people for people from there on. You may be different, but you're not evil. That is the most basic human, decent, commonplace thing, common sense thing that someone can do. And of course, if you can afford, you know, you can, there's not just financial donations. I mean, I'm thinking of people who may not have enough time to think about these issues or to educate themselves, but they are craving to do something. Um, there's, of course, many, many, you know, find out what is the agency, what is the the place that you trust so you can make a small donation, a very small one, um, just to sort of say that I also helped, I also did something. You know, there is the um, there is UNHCR, of course. Um, there is Khalsa Aid. They've been it's based out of England, but it's it's everywhere in the world. They do tremendously wonderful stuff for refugees. Um, I know that uh, at least in Madison, Jewish Social Services has a designated program for refugees. Um, so find out about such a such program. You know, try to donate money to them, or just try to say that. It's not, if I'm not doing something now, tomorrow if I meet someone who may tell me that they were a refugee, I'll be kind to them. How about just that? You don't have to do anything. Just basic human decency, accepting that someone in need can be helped, helped as maybe I was helped when I was in need. And I say that because, you know, I came as a foreigner in the United States um, in mid-1990s, 1995, and I was amazed at how many people were willing to help me. And um, I I was actually extremely impressed by that. And I took that as the much longer culture of migration of people coming from elsewhere in the United States. So if that can happen, that that can light, that can keep that light of hope alive in someone. Um, right, helping them out in this way. So there are multiple ways. Sure, sure, and and the the, the uh, kindness to strangers is Absolutely. such an important part of this. Uh, it, it seems so hard in our world, uh, and maybe this comes back to Zachary's excellent question. Right, a world that's very much about defining people as in or out, um, and as on one side or the other, or as one American president put it, right, you're either with us or against us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a society also that I think is uh, hyper uh, concerned about the absence of sufficient resources. Yes. And someone else taking our resources, whatever that means. And I'm not even sure why there are resources to start with, right? Um, how do you, as a teacher, try to get your students beyond that? Because I think the, the opposite of what you, what you called for mm-hmm. is too much of the default in our public discourse. How do you counteract that? By tapping on the kindness and generosity of my students. I think that's my first step, by listening to them, precisely by dispelling those kinds of myths um, about someone necessarily coming and taking their job away. We all live in a competitive world, and this is where, you know, the... um, my experience, my formative experience growing up in India, um, uh, post-independence India, but in uh, the 80s 
and then going to college in the 90s, right? That was a very special time. And I'm not saying there are any golden periods, you know, and now we always think about the R period as the best period. That's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> we're getting um, old, Venkat. That's a we're sign. We're getting old. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I, I grew up in a time when um, secular values were considered uh, very important and capital played a very important, a very different role than it did, let's say, in um, extremely affluent nations such as um, the United States or um, Great Britain, etc. So I, I point this out because if we think about where these refugees from Afghanistan are going to go, they're going to go to Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has fenced itself off, by the way. Very disappointing. They're going to go into uh, Iran. They're going to ultimately make their way into Turkey. Some of them would like to come to India. Um, you know, there are massive parts of these nations too where resources are very strained. There isn't basic infrastructural health, um, you know, or other kinds of facilities, hospitals. I mean, the pandemic has revealed a lot about the whole world. So now you think about the plight of these people going to places that do not have resources, which is where we have to, and this is one of the examples, we're thinking in a global bird's eye view perspective about the world right? Not just thinking about a particular area as disconnected from the rest of the world, but as part of a larger structure. Think about it in terms of, you know, the, the periodic table in chemistry. Can I point out at just uh, gold and say, I'm only going to study this? You know, the entire periodic table has to be studied with one metal in relationship to another. It's in their difference that we learn what this entire table is about. And by the way, I was a very bad chemistry student, <laughs> so I don't know why I'm thinking about it. But but this is what I think I tell my students, that think of yourselves um, not just as residents of City X, um, County Y, but think of yourselves as part of a larger text that goes beyond the nation, that doesn't disconnect you from the nation where you grew up and you're proud of. And mind you, Jeremy, you have international students too at UT Austin, right? Staying aware of what one is rooted in, where one comes from, but seeing those uh, those origins in relation to the rest of the world. And I think that for me, with my students too, creates a very different kind of text where um, they themselves take over and join in and create a new text of empathy, which I think is very important. I mean, I'm not nostalgic only about the past, I have to say. It is the next generation that teaches us a lot. They are the ones who will lead us into a better future. And I'm pretty confident of it. And I think that's where this connection with the next generation, it's tech savvy, it's its worldly. They know that they're going to live in a more and more heterogeneous world in a society where they'll find people like me, people like others with accents, with uh, other family backgrounds. They might share a neighborhood with them. You know, they get it. They get it. And I think to listen to the students, to tap on that um, sense of heterogeneity, to think about that hope together, that's what I think makes um, opening up of this text possible for me. I, I think that's so well said. Zachary, does, does that resonate with you? Do you see um, the 
kindness towards strangers and a broader canvas of understanding of uh, migration. Do you see that seeping into your generation and how so? Well, uh, we've been talking a lot lately in, in, in my high school community about things like microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And I've also personally been reading uh, probably more philosophical texts on things like the banality of evil, this idea that, that so, many, so many of the worst things in the universe and, and in human history are created by simple acts of ignorance. But I think there's also the opposite, right? There are these micro gestures of compassion that can add up to, to, to big impacts and to helping lots of people. And, and some of the, the greatest gestures in human history are created simply by choosing to listen to people and choosing to reach out. And I think there really is that sense uh, in my generation that, 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 that we need to move beyond the microaggressions to the micro-compassion. Hmm. Beautifully said. Venkat, does that resonate with your work as well? Beautifully said. This is exactly, you know... Um, this pretty much sums up my 15-minute discourse. So thank you, Jav. Exactly. Uh, so, no, no, no. I think we should have... That's why I was saying this generation is much smarter than we are. Yes, they are. They are, and they're responsible. And, and uh, well, first, there is, of course, the distance too, right? Um, so the ways, Jeremy, you and I experienced uh, 2001, 9-11, is not the way this generation is experiencing Right. Secondly, um, last year was, uh, and I was so happy to see, uh, uh, to hear Zachary that in your high school community, the word that you used in my high school community, we are discussing that. Not in my specific class, not in my course X or Y, but if that is a, a, a discussion going on in the community, more power to you all. That's beautiful. Um, last year was not just the global pandemic in the United States. It was a year of major racial reckoning, a reckoning, a coming to terms with our history. Now, I may have spent only a quarter of a century in this country, and I'm very, very relatively new um, to the much longer history of, of the United States. But at the same time, um, I am part of this political text. So what happens here? I take it as my responsibility as well. I mean, both as a person of color, but also as an educator, as a researcher, that there is a there is a text of of there is a presence of um, acute um, disadvantages that also exists in the United States. Racisms of very specific kinds that exist, microaggressions of very specific kinds. And it becomes my responsibility to intervene and act in order to build a better society. And I cannot do that alone, which means I need my students. I need my colleagues. I need anyone who will walk two steps with me. And that is why this micro-compassion that you mentioned, right, uh, Zachary, that becomes important. If even for a day, if even for um, at some traffic signal or some Walgreens, if one can tap into one's micro-compassion and do something nice, undo one's hatred, that becomes that becomes a gesture. But more practically, I think that is where education in the humanities and social sciences, and especially humanities, literature, history, that for me is very important. Because if we don't come to terms 
with our history. If we don't recognize history, history of movements, histories of heterogeneity, of plurality, if we don't think about the relevance and ask hard questions about what is essential for us in order to survive peacefully, to coexist in this larger world, if we don't have compassion for the person next door, we won't be able to build compassion for a refugee who's being created right now thousands of miles away from us, right? And that is why asking those hard questions, that is why thinking through some of these basic assumptions of our life, undoing our privileges, unlearning our privileges, that becomes important. And, and I think this resonates so well, our entire discussion, Venkat, with one of the foundations for um, thinking about democracy as a historical Absolutely. and philosophical entity, which is uh, how does a society treat the least fortunate, the mm-hmm. newest arrivals? Um, and, and I think it's fair to say, and I think this is a theme throughout our podcast, that our society is at its most democratic. It's achieving its aims most, not when it's simply producing more money. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that, but when it's actually helping those uh, who are least fortunate. And as you said so well, uh, we all have migrants in our, in, in our DNA. We're, we're mm-hmm. all the children of migrants. And uh, to think about democracy as not the melting pot of migrants, but the community for different migration experiences. I think, Venka, you've, you've done more than uh, anyone else I know to articulate that and to share it with us, particularly today. And, and I think it, it gives us a lot of food for thought. Thank you for joining us today, Venka. Thank you so much. I so thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Jeremy. And, and thank you, Zachary, for your poem. And yes. The image, it's, I think it's embedded in our minds now of the, the airplane with the city clinging Very to much, it. very much so. I couldn't get out of it when I was thinking of the first answer. So truly powerful. And thank you, of course, to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.